With hopeful expectation, a little girl approached her dad. Daddy, she asked, can I have a nickel with an enthusiasm to match? He answered her, well, how about if I give you a $5 bill instead? She walked away disgruntled, mumbling to herself, I wanted a nickel. Question for you. Will you set aside what is less for God's best for you? At the age of 30, the great composer Beethoven began losing his hearing. And for the last decade of his life, he was totally deaf. When he was found dead at 56 years of age, it was said that he had his fists clenched. And someone who knew him said, it was a posture which he took as if he would strike God. And his lips were drawn back in a snarl as if to spit in defiance and his bitterness at God who made him. Beethoven, how about if I give you a $5 bill? But he walked away disgruntled, mumbling to himself, but I wanted my hearing. Will you set aside what is less for God's best. We may not see it. We may not understand. We may have all kinds of questions. Why? How come? Why now? Will you trust that God knows what he's doing? That it is God who gives and he takes away. For his glory and our ultimate good. Certainly there was the normal, usual, everyday sibling rivalry. And there was plenty of testosterone in the family. Same dad, but different mothers. Four different mothers. Complicated matters. This one was the firstborn of his mother, but he was son number 11. Though he was way down the food chain. He had a dream, and he took opportunity at morning breakfast, well, what did you dream about last night? To speak and tell his dream. Well, that was Joseph's undoing. He told his brothers that he had a dream, two of them as a matter of fact, where his brothers bowed down in submissive obedience to him. Well, that was that. That that was enough. They had plenty of their fill of this little brother of theirs. When they had opportunity, they threw him into a pit. They negotiated, and they they figured that they'd make a little bit of money by selling him to some slave traders, which they did. Then they stripped the robe off of him, dipped it in an animal's blood, took it to Dad, and said, See, your son Joseph is dead. Broke his heart. He was a young man. Handsome man, skilled man. He was sold into the home of, a, of, a, of an Egyptian official by the name of Potiphar. And his wife had eyes on this new slave they brought in. She tried repeatedly to seduce him unsuccessfully. And on one occasion, she screamed, lied, and Joseph ended up in prison. 
He was there for the entire decade of his 20s. Think about where you were in your 20s. Think of all the things that you did during that decade. Joseph did one thing. He sat in prison. And then he sat in prison. And after that, he sat in prison. God, all I want is my life back. How about if I give you a $5 bill instead? No, God, I just want my life back. Thirty years of age, he not only got his life back, but he got so much more. The story reads as if it's, if it, as if it's fictional. How, how could somebody who was a, a, a slave, now a, an imprisoned man, been there for a over a decade, how does he become prime minister of the world's sole superpower? How is that? But that's what God had in mind from the very beginning. Could he see it? No. He had no idea what what, what the Lord was going to do. But this was God's plan. This was God's will, not only for Joseph, but for his extended family, indeed, for all of the nations around the Mediterranean. God's will and his ways are often beyond our comprehension. And we put our trust in the one who says I am the one who is large and in charge. This morning, our text of Scripture takes us to a new section in the fourth gospel. Last week, we concluded John chapter 10. After the prologue in the first 18 verses of John's gospel, the first section, beginning in chapter 1, the middle of chapter 1, all the way through Uh, the um, end of chapter 10, that that one section describes the, the public ministry of our Lord Jesus, where he reveals himself as the bread of life, the water of life, the light of life. And now as we go into chapter 11, he reveals himself to be life itself. The Apostle John doesn't give us an enormous number of miracles that Jesus performed. Gives us a rather small number, actually. But as we found with the, uh, the, uh, the man born blind in John chapter 9, uh, the Apostle gives us a lot more detail. He, he, he takes his time with those particular miracles that reveal who Jesus is. He's... He, he's he, He gives us lots of details so that we can understand uh, in depth and with clarity who Jesus is and what he's all about. As is with the, the account of his friend Lazarus who dies and is raised back to life. There is a, um, there, there is a rhythm in this chapter that I want you to see. Most of you have read this chapter many times. I've preached on this chapter before. Uh, but there, there, there's, a, there's a rhythm in this chapter. We, we find Lazarus as, uh, being sick. And then we find Jesus delaying going up to Jerusalem. We find G- Lazarus's sickness unto death. And we find Jesus then going up to Jerusalem. We find Lazarus, who was sick and dead, now alive And we find Jesus now in Jerusalem, and there is a plot on his life. It's a glorious chapter. And uh, we, we we see God's sovereign hand 
orchestrating, choreographing every rhythmic movement. It's the same in your life as well. Read with me our text. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who appointed the Lord with who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he, he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus, has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may waken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, uh, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to him, said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. Point number one, the need. Verse one tells us that there was a man who was sick. Okay, there's people sick all the time. But there's one in particular that we're focusing on. His name is Lazarus. And he's from the town of Bethany, specifically the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, John informs us of that because there's two Bethanies. There's Bethany beyond the Jordan that we read about in John chapter 1. That's where John was performing his ministry and was baptizing people in the Jordan. And then there's Bethany that's outside of the city of Jerusalem. It's a bedroom community, if you will, just two miles outside of, of, of Jerusalem on the east side of the Mount of Olives. It's this Bethany where Lazarus, the sick man, lived. And he identifies this, John identifies this, as as the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This is the first time we're introduced to Lazarus. We know previously from the synoptics about Uh, Mary and Martha. You remember, uh, Martha was the one who was concerned about making sure everything was well. She she was a a woman gifted with hospitality, but Mary was the one who was sitting at the feet of Jesus. You remember, she was, she, Martha was the one who, who uh, pled with Jesus, make her get up and help me. And Jesus said, wait a minute, she's doing an honorable thing. Let her be. 
so because the synoptic writers had finished their gospel records and it was, they, they were well-known, well-distributed, well-read um, prior to John penning his gospel, the early church knew about Mary and Martha. Uh, but not Lazarus. He appears to be the youngest and not as involved, maybe. Lazarus was, was the one who was sick. And now in verse 2, um, John gives us another, another helpful piece of context for his readers. He says, it, it was, it, it, this was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment, wiped his feet with her hair. It, it's, it's, it's her little brother that was ill. Now we're going to read about that event in chapter 12, where Mary anoints the Lord's feet with ointment, wipes his feet with her hair. Um, that, that's coming, but the first century church already knew about that event. So he references it here, as if to say, I'm talking about Mary's brother. When my kids were little, they were called Rob's kids. But now that they're adults and, and well-established in their own careers, when introduced, I'm their dad. Just the way life works, right? Your, 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 your connection with the person who is maybe a little bit more prominent, well, this Lazarus, the one that's sick, that's, that's, that's Mary's little brother. Verse 3, so the sisters sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now on the surface, that may sound like a, a, a very um, a generic, uninvolved statement, but there are a couple of things that we have to grab a hold of here. Notice the attention-grabbing word, behold. Okay, the, the sisters sent a messenger with this message, Lord, behold, please take notice. He whom you love is sick. You know what I find interesting here? Is that the sisters do not say anything about what they want Jesus to do. They don't say, Jesus, please come. Jesus, he needs your healing touch. Jesus, what can you do for us right now? We need him better. I wonder if there's a lesson in there for us. How many times in our praying do we tell God what we want him to do? Oh, dear God, heal so-and-so. Take care of Aunt Martha's big toe. God, do this, do that. I, I, I wonder if, if, it, if it might be better for us to get rid of that bad habit of telling God what we want him to do. And rather, relish the relationship. Lord, he whom you love is sick. God is perfectly able to take care of his own. As a matter of fact, that's what he delights to do. And rather than asking for nickels, maybe we should be waiting on God to give us his $5 bill. Because his purposes are far grander, far more glorious than all we could ask or think. Point number two. 
Here's Jesus' first response. And that's really not what we wanted to see. We kind of fully expected, upon hearing that there are uh, problems in Bethany, Lazarus is sick. He's really sick. There is an intensity here. Rather than going, he doesn't go. Verse 4, when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. There's some instruction here. Jesus says in the hearing of the messenger, in the hearing of his disciples, three things. He says, first, the sickness is not to end in death. Now, (laughs) Jesus is omniscient. He knows all things. Uh, he, he, He knows that Lazarus is going to physically die. He's not saying that he's, he's, there's, no, there's going to be no fight, fatality here. And, and then he gets surprised as if, oh, 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 I, oh, oh, I didn't see that part coming. I didn't know how bad he was. No, he knows exactly how bad he was. And he knows that he is going to die. As a matter of fact, by the time the messengers get to Jesus, Lazarus probably was already dead. Now, nobody else knew that. But Jesus said, this sickness is not to end in death. Temporarily, yes, he was going to die. He did die. But there's a a hidden statement of prophecy here. The end that which is beyond the sickness and beyond his initial death, there is something beyond that that is life. Second thing that Jesus says, this sickness is for the glory of God. Now when we talk about God's glory, if you were to run through a concordance and look at all of the reference, references to, to glory. You'd find hundreds. And you'd be able to categorize them in, into certain groups. There, there are those statements that have to do with who God is. And we would describe him as glorious. We might use synonyms like magnificent splendorous, wonderful. So the word glory can describe who God is. It can also describe what he does. Uh, The heavens declare, Psalm Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. We, We find God's glory revealed in redemption. We find God's glory... As the, uh, as the tabernacle and then the temple were consecrated. God reveals his glory in what he does. So we find glory in who he is and what he does and in response to who he is and what he does, we give him glory, meaning that we offer him praise and thanksgiving for the abundance of his wonder, his majesty, his, his gifts, his presence with us. And maybe all of the above we find in this statement. In this sickness, we find coming in anticipation the glory of God. We find God in his wonder and in his splendor. We find his power in his healing of this sick and soon-to-be, if he hasn't already died, man. And in all of it, he would receive the glory through the praise and the thanksgiving of many. 
Thirdly, Jesus says that this sickness is so that the Son of God may be glorified. Turn with me over to John chapter 17. Called Jesus' high priestly prayer, we have um, some insight into Jesus' prayer life and his relationship with the Father. In verse 4 of chapter 17, we read this. I glorified you, speaking to the Father, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. John chapter 11 is a partial fulfillment of that prayer. Where in healing Lazarus, Not only would the Father be glorified, but the Son, doing the work of the Father in accordance with the Father's will, the Son would be glorified as well. And Jesus points that out to his men, to the messengers coming from Bethany. The sickness is not going to end in death. God is going to be glorified. Thirdly, the Son is going to be glorified as well. Now in verse 5, John gives us a parenthetical expression that is um, helpful for us to see. He, he's, he's preparing his, 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 his readers. Verse 5 simply reads this way. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And that probably was the birth order of these, uh, these three adults. Martha, Mary, Lazarus. What's of interest to me and significant to all of us is the verb in verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. Jesus loved them. The word is agape. This is the the highest form of love, the most self-sacrificing, selfless kind of faithful, loyal love that uh, we would would find recorded. And, And Jesus demonstrates this kind of love toward this trio. All right. Nothing too surprising here yet. Here's what's significant. That verb is in the imperfect tense. And here's what that means. We could legitimately translate that particular verb. Jesus was loving Martha, Mary, Lazarus. Jesus was loving. There is something that hints to, that that forces us to go backwards, but we realize that at that time, in that moment, Jesus was, had been, was engaged in an intimate relationship with this group of people. So that when we get to, to verse 6, Jesus' love of Martha and Mary and Lazarus is already well established. He was loving them. He was loving them specifically in the action that takes place in verse 6. It reads this way. Well, let me start with verse 5. Now, Jesus was loving Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, Jesus then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Wait a minute. What what kind of 
What kind of faithful, loyal love is that toward a friend who is in need? He just stays away intentionally? When Lazarus needed him most, he lingered as if nothing was going on for two days. My friends, that's $5 love right there. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Second page of your notes. We see a a different response from Jesus. Not just one of delay, but one of reassurance. He's still at work. Don't worry, men. Verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, um, the Jews just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? You remember, if you were with us um, over the last couple of weeks, we, we looked at John chapter 10, verse, uh, verse 24, where the Jews were, were, were surrounding Jesus as a, like a pack of wolves. And they were demanding from him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, Jesus told them very plainly who he was. His deeds declare who he is. He didn't use the word Messiah, Hebrew word, or Christ, Greek word. Uh, He didn't use uh, anointed one, English word, meaning all the same thing. Um... He, he didn't use that because uh, that, that was in first century Jewish uh, jargon, that was, that was an anarchist word. That was a militant, political, um, kick out the Romans kind of word. No, Jesus didn't use that because of those bad connotations. But he made himself eminently clear who he was. Verse 30 of chapter 10. I and the Father are one. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him because they knew exactly what he was claiming. He was claiming to be deity, God in the flesh. And this is the third time in John's gospel that we find the Jews trying to take Jesus out. They wanted to kill him. So the disciples, now in chapter 11, realize, wait a minute, Jesus, you're you're talking about going back up to Jerusalem? All right, you've already told us that Lazarus is, um, is, is going to get better. And you've delayed two more days, so your actions are telling us it's not a big deal. We're thinking at this point, Jesus, this is not a big deal. But yet you're saying that you're going to go up to Jerusalem? That's crazy talk. We already know Lazarus is going to get better. You told us that. It's not going to end in death. So why go up? Jesus answered their objection, verse 9. Are there not 12 hours in the day? What's he getting at? In in Western thinking, um, an hour is a very specific block of time. It doesn't change. It's always 60 minutes. Always. But in Eastern time, Roman time, Greek time, it was rather fluid because... 12 hours described daylight. 12 hours, in air quotes, described the hours in which you could work. So, 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 so 12 hours was your workday as well as daylight hours. In the wintertime, those 12 hours were shorter than they were in the summertime. Well, for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere... 
Um, Jesus is saying that in these 12 hours, that's, that's when you work, and that, that's when you can walk around in the daylight. He continues. If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Well, this is as typical with, 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 with Jesus. There's a, there's a little bit of a twist here where we're, um, we're expecting that he's teaching us here, and indeed he is. He's saying that, well, there is daylight. You can walk safely, and you can work. And he's saying, it's daylight now, men, and we can work, and I'm working. Look with me over at chapter 9, verse 4. Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. But right now, it's daytime. And I'm still working, Jesus said. Now, he, he says this in the context of, of his disciples being fearful that they're going to go up to Jerusalem and Jesus is going to lose his life because the Jews want to stone him. And Jesus says, I'm doing my Father's work because it's daylight. And I am going to work until it is night. He's in charge of the sun He's in charge of all the daylight hours. Nobody's going to do anything to him unless he allows it. So he is able to go up to Jerusalem and continue to work, continue to love on Mary, Martha, and, and, and Lazarus as long as it is day. And he's going to do that as long as it is day. Verse 11. This he said, and after he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go so that I may waken him out of his sleep. Now, we all know, we, we've used this expression even in our culture, that, that sleep is often a euphemism for death. Uh, we read in the Old Testament over and over again, that, that so-and-so died, and he, he slept with his fathers when the uh, first Christian martyr, Stephen, was stoned to death, Acts chapter 7. It says at the, the very end of that particular chapter, uh, when, um, when, when Stephen died, it says, text says that he fell asleep. In 1 Thessalonians 4, First uh, Corinthians 11, Paul, Paul talks about uh, believers who have gone to sleep, those who are asleep. He's, he's euphemistically referring to those who have died. So Jesus says to his men, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. He's died. And he's saying, I, I'm, I am going to waken him to raise him from death. The concept of, of Jesus raising the dead is, is not something new and unfamiliar to the disciples at this point. Because Jesus raised a number of people over the course of his ministry. He, he raised a number of people from death. When Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, um, we're, we're, we are at the end of his life, his physical life. Um, but, but, um, uh, but, but for them to, to be using this, the, this idea of, of, of sleep and of death being something that's temporary, there's being something on the other side of death, that's a new concept for the disciples. Verse, verse 12. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. It's like uh, they're saying, Jesus, um, you know, we, we went to sleep last night, and we all woke up, and we're all still here. 
and we're okay, and so will Lazarus, and you still don't have to go up to Jerusalem. He's going to wake up, and he's going to be just fine. Trust us. You really don't have to go up there. Then Jesus said, well, Matthew, rather Mark gives us this parenthetical expression. Uh, Jesus had spoken of death, but they, they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. And then Jesus says to them, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. Pause there for just a second, would you? Look at that phrase again. Jesus says, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. Jesus is glad that he wasn't there. Now in the context here, he's glad that he wasn't there because this would have been, had Jesus been there while he was ill, prior to his death, there would have been that that expectation, um, those people praying would would have been telling Jesus what to do. Heal him. You've done it before. And for Jesus, it would have been um, just another perfunctory um, healing. Get ready for healing number 1743. No. That would have been like like, um, passing out nickels for Jesus. Just another healing. No, he was purposing to do something stellar, phenomenal, earth-shattering. He had a $5 experience he was looking to perform. So he said, I'm, I'm glad I wasn't there at that time, while he was sick and while he died. Yes, yes, he has something greater in store greater for God's cosmic glory and greater for the good of this family. But before I continue to, uh, uh, with, the, with the text and push the play button, let, let, me, let me continue with the pause here for just a minute. I, I was glad for your sakes that I was not there. One of the diabolical Uh, lies that Satan foists upon God's people is to think that Jesus doesn't really care. He is uninvolved and uninterested in your struggles and your difficulties. And we might be even tempted to, to put a period after the word there in verse 15, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. Period. As if we are all alone, struggling with our struggles, whatever they may be. My friends, we must push that thought out of our brain. You are not going through your affliction, your angst, your anxiety, your, your difficult, your, your, uh, your, your, your troubles without Jesus. As if you are uninterested, as though he is uninterested in you or uninvolved with you. Well, think about it. If you are a believer in Christ, the blood of Christ has been shed as payment for you. (coughs) Meaning, (coughs) God owns you. You belong to him. And the scriptures further tell us that for those who have repented and, and believed in Christ, they've been adopted by the Lord Jesus. They're family now. Malachi 3 tells us that God never changes. And he's not going to change by unadopting his children. 
If you have been purchased by the blood of Christ, you are owned by God. You have been welcomed by God into his family, and he's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. He's not going to abandon you. You may, for a time, feel as though he has neglected you, walked away, is uninvolved and unconnected with you. You may feel as though these are your best years and here you are stuck in prison. You may be a musician thinking, I, 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 have, I have to have my ears. I, I, I have to hear. Some would argue that some of Beethoven's best work was done while he could not hear. God, I just want, I just want a nickel. <laughs> no, you've got to wait. Something is better. Something better is in store. He never leaves his own. There is nothing that will separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Continuing in verse 15, because there's not a period after that word there. Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. That's what Jesus wants to accomplish. He, he wants... The disciples, he wants the family, he wants the Jews that surround this family. He wants all of them to believe, to have confidence in the midst of their questioning and their uncertainty. He wants them to have confidence in him. He wants them to trust him. So he says, let us go. Let us go to, to Lazarus. Let's start this process. Verse 16. Thomas, who is called Didymus, that's his Greek translation of his Hebrew name. Uh, Gemini is the Latin translation of his name. Um, twin is the English translation of his name. Thomas quite possibly was, was one of two. And while he was growing up, I am totally convinced that, that his, his favorite story for his mom to read him was Winnie the Pooh. And his favorite character in Winnie the Pooh was Eeyore. Lugubrious Eeyore. Don't you love that word? Lugubrious. That's one of my favorites. He, he was... He was pessimistic. He was miserable. Um, um, but I wonder. I, I wonder if you, you know uh, histo history says that that he he is Thomas the doubter. And I wonder if we might also add that he's Thomas the downer. <laughs> but um, I, I wonder if 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 we've m maybe mislabeled Thomas a little bit. Yeah, he was, he was on the lugubrious side, yeah, to be sure. But, um, but, I, but I wonder if his voice was also maybe a clarion call to take up our cross and follow Christ. This is what he says. Let us also go so that we may die with him. Maybe he said it like Ewer would have said it. Let's also go so that we may die with him. 
Or was he saying that we are so connected with each other and with Christ that whatever whatever our master is up to, we must also be up to that as well. If it means that Jesus is going to lose his life, how can we call ourselves disciples and not follow him and, and, and experience the same? Didn't Jesus say, Luke chapter 9, if anyone would, take up, would follow me, take, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. I conclude by taking you to my favorite minor prophet, Habakkuk. Turn, turn to, to that, uh, that little tiny book. Those of you that are new to the study of Scripture, I, I know we we'll, may have a little bit of a hard time finding it. Just, just go to the table context. Look, look up. Look for Habakkuk. Real close to the beginning of the New Testament. He's a minor prophet. Uh, n- not because his message was minor, not because he was uh, something less than as a man or as a prophet. No, he's called a minor prophet simply because the length of his message that has been inscripturated for us is short. Uh, Habakkuk begins his... his um, his, 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 his book in this way. Verse 2. How long, O Lord, will I come for help, but you will not hear? I cry to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why, why, why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, Destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore the law is ignored. Justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore justice comes out perverted. Habakkuk is living in a godless time in Israel's history. And there is no justice. And he is beyond frustrated because he's, 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 he's living in prison. And he can't see his way out. God responds in a rather shocking mind numbing way. Verse 5. Look out among the nations, Habakkuk. Observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe it if you were told. But I'm going to tell you anyway. Verse 6. Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a.k.a. the Babylonians, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. What? God, what are you doing? You're bringing the Babylonians? I understand that the, the, the people of which I am living with, my fellow Jews, they are, they are bad, wicked, corrupt, perverse people. But you are bringing the Babylonians to correct them? That's, God, that, that's, that's like bringing the bad, or, I'm sorry, that's like bringing the very bad people to discipline the bad people. Verse 12, with resignation, Habakkuk says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. 
He is acknowledging that God is God. <laughs> and when God says what he wants to do, he can do what he wants to do. He can establish his will. He can establish his ways. I need to learn to be content with that. But why? Why? Why use the Babylonians? Verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Yes, I live amongst a wicked people. But God, we are more righteous than the disciplining hand that you're bringing to chasten us. Well, Habakkuk realizes that his best posture is to sit and wait and keep his mouth shut. Chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Okay, God. You're God, I'm not. You, you know the beginning and the end. I can't see beyond the middle. Verse 2. The Lord answered me and said, Record the vision. Inscribe it on tablets that the ones who read it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Verse 4, the righteous will live by his faith. Habakkuk, you don't see the end. All you see is fog. And you hear the clomping of horse hooves coming right down Main Street. But I have the end in mind. And I'm going to accomplish that. And it will come about in my timetable. My righteous ones will live by faith. They will believe me when I say, I am in charge. With a bowed and humbled heart, verse 16 of chapter 3, Habakkuk says, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound of my lips, at the, at the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. I'm sitting here in prison, and I'm realizing that it's going to get worse. Now, if the story of Habakkuk would end right here, it, it, would be, it would be pretty discouraging and depressing. It doesn't end here. We've got a glorious finish. Follow with me from verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. That means people are going hungry. A lot of people are going hungry. Even though that's the case. 
Verse 18, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hinds feet. He makes me walk on my high places. Even though I am on slippery ground, I can stand firm and secure because God places me here and He's the one who makes me feel secure. He plants my feet here. Habakkuk learned to be content with God's will and God's ways. He was willing to give up what was less for God's best. All he was praying for was a nickel's worth of justice. God said, how about if I give you a five dollar bill? How about if I take care of not just your hunger for, for justice, but if I take care of all of the um, Israelite people at the same time, and I take care of all the Babylonian people at the same time? What if I trade in your 10 years worth of prison experience for a chance to live in the vice president's house. Let me ask you a few questions. Do you trust God's game plan? Do you trust that he has a will, a directive for your life, for this nation, for this world, the cosmos? And do you believe that God has ordained your steps and the steps of this world Are you content with his will and his ways? Are you learning to be content? Even though you can't see the end? It would be wise to stop pestering God for nickels and trust him for that which is bigger which is grander that which redounds to his glory and not only our good but our family's good and and the nation's good the world's good will you set aside what is less for what is God's best Father, we thank you for the work of the Spirit in the life of Joseph, life of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. We thank you for your work in our lives as well. For all of us, when we are in the midst of it, we, we, we hear the, the, the snapping of puzzle pieces into place when we open our eyes, they kind of surprise us about the situation. But you are never surprised by how things fall into place. You are the one who is large and in charge. You are the sovereign of the universe. You have your will and your ways 
that will accomplish all that you have decreed. We thank you, Father, that we can put our faith in that with great confidence. Help us trust you still more and walk with you ever closer, even through the valley of the shadow of death. Pray this in the name of the Holy One.